each one and uh, especially thanks to that high school group. It was some very fitting songs. I enjoyed them. They set the tone well for this evening and for this week. And I hope you feel as I do the need for personal life and personal revival this week. It's amazing the amount of memories that come back to me as I sit here 
uh, during this evening's service. I've been looking forward to this week, although with some trepidation, because like no other place, uh, you people probably know me better than most would. Uh, you're my peers. You're my family. Uh, you grew up with me. You're my Sunday school teachers and my school teachers and my youth leaders. And uh, it seems a bit strange somehow to be here. I don't need a lot of introduction tonight, although I appreciate what Gerald shared. I did remember meeting him in Guatemala. Because, uh, well, you saw me growing up. If you were sitting here in church one Sunday about 30 couple years ago and saw a seed head fly into your lap on a Sunday morning, that was me. Uh, I never told anybody that, but uh, probably hit one of you. When we uh, butchered Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, and when we walked around the church on stilts, and when we did all these things, you were there, and you know about where we come from. But if I never thanked you for providing me with a good church to grow up in, I do that now because I did feel that uh, your support over the years, and uh, it was a good place to grow up. And I appreciate your support since, and I appreciate your prayers this week. They're very important. I'm not sure where I will talk about this week, but I do start the week with one overarching goal for our week. And that is that wherever we are tonight, we could end the week a step closer to the Lord Jesus, and we'll step closer to Him. And I don't know of any problem, and any, any discouragement, or any depression, or any marriage issue, or any personal failure, they can't find some solution by taking a couple of steps closer to God. I think that, and that lies the secret of uh, what we're here for. We need to draw near to the source of life itself. To me, that's what revival is. A fresh vision, a fresh understanding of who God is, and a deeper faith in what He can do for me. Now this requires something of us, and I believe it's already been mentioned tonight, but if we have any desire for revival, it requires some personal honesty. Our spiritual life is a deeply personal thing. Uh, I don't know of anyone else in this congregation except God that knows your heart. I don't think you even know it as good as God does. I know I don't know my own as good as God does. It requires some honesty because I know what it's like to sit through revival meetings, and I probably did it in these benches, and hoping that God wouldn't touch that area of my life this week. Leave that till later. And uh, if we do want to walk close to the Lord, we need to be honest with ourselves and with God. It requires some personal investment. I don't know how you face meetings like this, but if you come feeling like uh, this is going to be simply an interruption to endure and a, a necessary requirement, it's going to be a really long week for you, and I feel for you. But if you think... It's something God can bless and use. The more we invest, the better it gets. I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I've felt that it takes about Friday or Saturday until God gets through my thick hide until He can actually start speaking and moving. But I think the more we invest and the more we think about it and meditate and pray, the quicker that can start to happen. So I invite you to invest that way this week. And uh, pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray for me. I need revival as much as anyone here. And I appreciate the prayers so far this week. Wherever we find ourselves in relation to God, I believe the path to a closer walk starts right where we are. We don't have to go somewhere else to get to where we want to go. It starts where we are. There's something we can do here. Something within your power, within your capacity to draw closer to God. I'm praying that God would be specific with me. And He'd be specific with you. I don't know what stumbling block is ours or what hurdle we're facing or, or what fear or what, what resistance. 
What is it that keeps us stagnant? Whatever it is, we need to overcome that thing and draw closer to God. There's a couple of ways, I guess, we could try to motivate ourselves to walk with the Lord and come closer to Him. Uh, if we would preach fire and brimstone and we would talk about sin and hell, that would probably motivate us closer to the Lord. Or we could simply gaze on the Father and let that be our motivation. I knew a couple of dogs once, once when I was growing up here in Granddaddy's place. There's an old collie named Lassie there. And that dog would never enter the house. Uh, you hardly drag him in, and except when there's a thunderstorm. When there's a thunderstorm, this dog would be panting at the nearest entrance trying to find his way in the house and go running into a closet and just shake and shiver until the thunder stopped. Then he'd go back out again. And I've known believers like that. When things get really, really bad, they run to find help. When the problem is over, they're, they're normal again. I knew a dog in Guatemala who, uh, whose young owner got married to a young man and lived close to her in-law's house. And uh, this dog learned that down at the in-law's house, there were younger children and there was tortillas and there was people there to pet it and be nice to it. And they could hardly keep that dog out of the house. It would run down there and enjoy family life and then go home again and drug back up the hill. There's a big difference in being inside because you have to be and being inside because you want to be. What I'd like to do tonight is just simply look at who God is and what He's inviting us to be and why it makes sense to be as close to a God like that as possible. We don't have to be there because we're forced to be. We're there because we want to know Him and walk with Him. So the first question to consider is what is God like? People are all over the map on this one. I was out in Los Angeles last spring and passing out some tracks, and one man refused my track and rolled up his sleeve and said, that's God right here. And uh, I wasn't quite sure what to say. I wish later I'd have said, oh, I'm sorry, your God is so small. But, uh, but some people think no more highly of God than that. One person out there told me, well, there must be two gods. The one visible one that Abraham saw and that walked with people and then the invisible one that created everything because he couldn't somehow get in his mind that they're one and the same. I met a Peace Corps volunteer in Guatemala one time, rode the bus beside her for a while, and we got to talking about things. She was from a Unitarian Universalist family, and she told me that her mother would pray like this, may the force give us life. A totally impersonal force out there that could maybe somehow uh, give us energy or something. That's her concept of God, but there's several things in common with those concepts. Number one, God is a lot smaller than He should have been. And number two, is a lot more impersonal than He should have been. And I'm thankful that our God is neither impersonal nor small. He's both personal and large. We can trust in a God like that. So what is your God like? I asked my students one time to describe Him. And they knew the words. They knew the omnipotent and the omnipresent and holy and good and righteous. God met Moses in the desert. And uh, Moses, one of the first things he asked God was, when I go to Egypt, what will I tell them your name is? What's your name? And in Scripture, if you look at different passages, God has more than one name. God has many names. Often when people discovered something new about God, that God could heal them, or God was fighting their battles for them, or God would do things for them, they would call God by a new name. And there's different examples of that through Scripture. But when God spoke to Moses, he introduced himself with one name. He told Moses, 
I am that I am. That was in Exodus 3. I am simply a, an endless circle of eternal existence. I am complete in myself. I am the eternal one. And then in Exodus 6, taken from that I am word, he tells Moses, my name is Jehovah. You've known me by the names, but my name is Jehovah. The self-existing one. And taken from the first one. The eternal one. When I look at these names of God and realize who God is, I soon realize that God is absolute power, complete authority, supreme creator. And He's created the very building blocks of, of nature that men even today are struggling to understand how they work and how they fit together. And, it's, uh, and He sustains His creation. He did not only create it and leave it to exist by itself, but He's actively sustaining it, giving it permission, breathing energy into it and keeping it going. I believe that even with all the cycles and all the laws of nature that God has put in His creation, I don't believe it could keep on existing for a day if God would withdraw His sustenance from it. I believe He actively sustains creation. It doesn't work on autopilot. And every created being is under that authority whether He likes it or not. Another thing we realize about God is His needlessness. God is all-powerful, totally self-existent, and He is totally needless. Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill pointed that out. He depends on nothing outside of Himself. He needs no wealth. He needs no food. doesn't need any company or any uh, money or anything else that he, that, to, to improve His existence. In fact, if God needed anything, He could make it for Himself. He's a creator anyway. And uh, he needs no attention. Some people have the idea that God in eternity was so lonely that he wanted someone to relate to, so he created humanity. I don't believe God requires a friendship with anyone. God is so totally self-existent and complete in himself, he needs nothing to add to his own existence. God needs no service. God needs no worship. God needs nothing to make him more complete. I don't think there's anything I can do to add to God or somehow supply God with something that He doesn't already have. I cannot improve His existence. And that's Jehovah. I am that I am. This endless circle of self-existent needlessness and holiness. I believe it's impossible to over-exalt God. If we ever have a problem, it's probably underestimating God, understating God, but we never can over-exalt or overstate who God is. Is that possible? I don't think it's possible for us to wrap our minds around Him anyway. When we speak of God, we speak in superlatives. He's the highest measure of everything that He is. He's the full sum of every attribute. He's the highest measure of every characteristic that He contains. We talk about God's love. God is the perfection of love. He's the highest standard of love. He's the measure of it. If we talk about God's holiness, He's the standard of, by which everything else is measured. Uh, he's the sum of it. And anytime we talk about His mercy or justice or other attributes, He is the full measure of all these things. It's impossible to overexalt who He is. I believe it's impossible to even separate out the attributes of God. Uh, an attribute, I believe I understand it right, is something that God is by nature. It's part of what makes Him up. And uh, it's part of His character. And if we say that God is love and God is holy and God is just and God is merciful, 
there's never an act or decision on the part of God that, that denies the rest of his own nature. Uh, we tend to talk about his love as something isolated and his justice as something isolated. But in God's makeup and his composition, I don't think we can, we can do that. We can look at them separately to understand it, but it's sort of like water. Water is hydrogen and oxygen. There's uh, two hydrogen and one oxygen. They come together, they form water. And you can take these things apart to study them. You can understand how oxygen works and how hydrogen works. But nowhere in all the planet will you find water existing anywhere that isn't water or hydrogen and oxygen together. It cannot exist without those two. And that's a little bit like God. You can't take out a part of God and still have God. You can't take out His love or take out His mercy or take out His justice and still have God as, as a perfect God. I don't think God can exist without these attributes and we can't reinvent Him in any other way. Now where does God dwell? Well, the quickest answer people say, well, God dwells in our hearts and that's hopefully true. But Isaiah 57 points this out, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him also who is of a humble and contrite spirit. Now here it says that God dwells in eternity. What does that mean to you? If you pick a direction, north or south say, and you follow that direction into infinity, in both directions, that's eternity. There's nothing to stop it. There's no interruption. It's an eternal course. Or take a direction in time. I don't know of any other uh, dimensions, I guess. Take a direction in time. You can go forward and go backwards. How far forward can you go? How far backwards can you go? That's eternity. You can go as far as you'd like. And here it says that God inhabits eternity. Now, there's no limits on God. That's His natural habitation in eternity. He's limitless in both space and time. He is... Uh, he has no limits placed upon him. That's his natural domain. And I wonder sometimes what God did there all that time. Uh, eternity passed. Sometime during that eternal scope of things, I believe he surrounded himself with a holy society that reflects his nature. He put angels there to reflect his holiness, his beauty, his worship. He put an environment there that reflects his character, his perfection. And uh, sometime, I believe, before the earth began, that was in place. Somehow God put that there. But there's two things about God that we can know only because God's Word tells us so. And one is that God inhabits eternity outside of the realm of time. And the other that God is spirit, which means God is something different than physical things and material things. When I look at those two things, that God is both eternal and God is spirit, it puts Genesis 1-1 into an interesting light. Because there it simply says that God created the heaven and the earth. Now, how is it that God being spirit created the physical material universe? Not like himself. How is it that God being eternal created something with, with limits on it like entropy and uh, limits of space and direction? And uh, how is it that God created something that, that reflects much of who he is but is not quite like himself? And where did he put it? If he inhabits eternity, where did he put the universe? Uh, you can bang your head over that one for a while. Now think of it like this. If you watch children blowing bubbles, 
They dip their wand and blow into it and let this bubble fly off and float in the air. For a little bit, that bubble floats in the air, its own little environment. It's sealed off from all the rest. It's, it's, it's like a self-contained little environment, universe inside there. There's no connection with the outside until it bursts. And then it is absorbed back into the rest again. I see creation a little bit like that. See, eternity is immense. It's no limits. But the material things have a limit to them. There's entropy there. There's limits of time and space placed on, upon it. Um, at the beginning, when God created those, this seamless integration of that which is eternal and that which is material. God walked with man and there seemed to be no real problem with that. But after the curse, things changed. I, I look around Floyd, or Virginia, Campbell County this evening on the way down. Springtime is so beautiful. Floyd is too, but it's not quite as far ahead as it is right now here. And if earth is so beautiful now, what must it have been before the fall? Uh, even now, God's fingerprints are all over His creation. It's easy for us to see the things that God did and things that reflect His character and His nature and shows a little bit what He's like. Even if He's so immense and He created this physical world, there's evidence that's left of that inside it. Steve uh, Yoder up in Floyd has these very interesting devotionals. And uh, he's, every time he has devotions, all the children love it because he usually shares some amazing fact from nature and points to the creativity of God. And one thing that he told us one time was about a, a pine tree out west somewhere. I didn't look this up myself. That creates a pine cone that never opens up. If you look around here, your pine's cones open up and the seeds can fall out. But that one tastes stays so tightly closed that there's no way those seeds are coming out of there. And so this thing gets ripened. And uh, how in the world is a pine tree like that with such a defect everyone to reproduce itself? Well, God put out there this little bird, the strong little beak, that feeds almost exclusively on pine seeds out of this cone. And uh, every year this little bird is busy pecking around and breaking this thing open and getting seeds out and eating them. And this little bird does a little bit like a squirrel does. He can't eat all the seeds and they're ripe, so he gets a beak full and flies to an open place in the forest somewhere and starts burying these things in a row in the ground uh, to come back and eat them later. But he misses a few, and so these pine trees grow that would never be able to reproduce on their own, perhaps. And here these two things work together so beautifully. It's just a picture of the creativity of God. Have you ever thought of that? I never would have thought of such a thing. God's a master of creativity. Uh, we look at the immensity of God, but can you imagine the, the minuscule things that God has made? In our science class, we studied a little bit of uh, molecular things and atomic structure. and um, All matter, I guess, is formed basically the same concept. You have a nucleus, then you have little electrons zipping around the outside of these nucleus, more or less depending on the type of, of element that it is. And these little electrons zip around there trillions of times per second. Can you imagine the speed of that? And uh, if you take an atom and expand it about five feet high or so, and uh, the electrons are zipping around the outside of it, you might look for the, the nucleus and never see it because it's so little, it's about the size of the dot of an eye inside that five foot high atom. It's about how big it is. If you'd expand this thing to the size of a football stadium, the, uh, there'd be a marble in the center and there'd be grains of sand zipping around the outside of the bleachers. That's about how 
atoms are made up. And that's what God designed. The interesting thing is, the speed of those electrons allow for material matter not to penetrate other matter. It's the electron cloud in this one ramming against the electron clouds in this one. It's almost like trying to put your finger through a fan. Those electrons go so fast, you can't do it. And that's how matter works. And uh, God is a master at miniature things. You know all about germs. There's a little thing I learned recently about a germ's flagella or flagellum. And uh, it's an amazingly complex little thing. You have this little, uh, little germ or bacteria uh, living all around us probably. And it's a little whip-like cord out the back of this little thing that whips around in a circle and propels this uh, bacteria forward. And they've been able to study these things, but only through an electron microscope because they're so, so tiny. And uh, they move so fast. It's a very efficient little motor, a little electronic motor in there. And there's a flow of electrons to get this thing whipping around up to 100,000 RPMs. Can you imagine the speed of that? And this thing can motivate itself forward. And somehow the friction doesn't wear it out. And uh, it can propel this thing quite quickly. But it's so agile, it can stop itself and reverse in the opposite direction about a one-quarter of a turn. It's so quick. It can push that thing forward about 15 body lengths per second, which in human terms would be like swimming about 60 miles an hour. Can you imagine the beauty of that? And these things are so tiny, the little electronic motors in these bacteria are so small that if you cut a, a human hair apart, on the surface area of the cross section, you could fit about 8 million of these little motors. That's how miniature they are. And they're right under our noses. Or right in our noses, but they're all over the place. And God designed these things. He's creative. Amazing. One thing that makes me feel small is to go outside and lay and look up at the stars on a starry night and imagine the immensity and the hugeness of the things that God created. Light travels pretty quickly, 186,000 miles per second. It takes about eight minutes for it to get from the sun. About four or five years to the nearest star at that rate of speed, which is clipping along quite quickly. But to put our solar system in perspective, if you take the sun and reduce it down to about the size of a hay bale, about five feet high, our Earth would be about 150 yards away and about the size of a grape. I don't know how far that is, down to the road or somewhere out that way. And the moon will be about a foot away from the grape. That's perspective. And the most distant planets will be about two or three miles away. And they'll be about the size of oranges and lemons. That's the size of our, our solar system. It's going, going around our sun. But if you'd want to travel to the nearest star, how far do you have to go to find another star the size of a hay bale? In that perspective, you have to travel about 25,000 miles to find another one just like it. And that's the nearest one. And these things are sprinkled through our galaxy. And our galaxy is only one galaxy. And there's many galaxies. And they say that the Andromeda galaxy, which is one not too far away, if that one ever collide with the Milky Way, the whole galaxy would probably just go right through each other without one star hitting another one because the spaces are so immense between them. It's a tremendous amount of space out there. If you hold up a grain of sand at arm's length, you're probably covering about 10,000 galaxies that they have seen out there. Amazing distances. The Voyager was a space probe that they launched about, about 38 years ago or so. It reached a top speed of 38,610 miles per hour. 
and just finally this last year or two passed out of the reach of the solar system. And scientists are looking forward to the day when it will reach the nearest star about 40,000 years from now. That's about how long it's going to take to get to the nearest star. Now think about it this way. All of this, from the miniature to the, the, the immensity of what we just talked about, everything started in God's mind. And in creation week, He put all this together. And somewhere in the vastness of all eternity, He set this, this universe to run. And I guess there's a limit somewhere because God said, and the creation was finished and all the hosts of them, and God ceased from His labors. I believe that means that even stars stop somewhere. There's a limit there. And everything material that God created, He put in this physical universe that week. It fits in there. And inside that bubble, God put man, you and me. And He put them there for one reason. In Acts 16, it says 17, And it's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. That's why God put people in this creation. So that, feeling after God, they might find Him. That's our purpose. That's what we're called to do. Why is it, with all the evidence of God's creativity and wisdom, do so few grasp it and find it? Why is it that some people can study the marvels of creation all their life and finish their life further from God than when they began? We watched a Hubble film at the IMAX last year. And they said that they're with Hubble telescope looking to unlock the secrets of the universe. And they found some amazing things. There's amazing pictures. But these people are further from the secret of the universe than ever before. I believe it was Isaac Asimov or someone that said before his death, after studying these things, he said, you could almost think that there was a designer behind all this, but no... It couldn't be true. And he died convinced that it all just happened like that. And I believe there's a reason that inside this material bubble, that the more people seek and the more people explore and, and, and study, they can't find God without this one ingredient. Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible for us to, to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. And it's impossible to find God based on evidence alone. There's always a gap left that must be crossed by faith and it cannot be crossed by anything else. You cannot reason your, play, your, your way into a relationship with God. It requires faith. And we live inside this material bubble and this physical environment and we experience it with our five senses. But beyond what we see, the spiritual reality of who God is, the eternal realities, these aren't experienced by sense. They're experienced by faith. And we live in this material world, and if you are like I am, it's so easy sometimes to grasp at things that we see and feel as things that are, are valuable and eternal and, and long-lasting and uh, makes us feel secure. And it's so easy to forget that just beyond what we can see is, is a whole realm yet that's more eternal and more valuable and more long-lasting than anything we could ever find inside this creation of physical things. There's one place in all the universe that the physical world and the eternal world intersect. And I believe that's in our hearts. It, it's right there. 
I don't think there's any other place where the eternal intersects the physical like here. And I believe your heart is God's portal to your existence. And that's the way it is to all of humanity. The only way to experience God is through faith in that heart. That's the way it begins. And Paul wrote that God is not far from any one of us. He's near to us. Just beyond our horizons is a whole new reality. Sometimes it's good for us to stop what we're doing and just look out as far as we can see. It could be a blue sky, it could be a horizon. And think, you know, any minute, any minute, when Christ returns again, this bubble that I live in is going to pop. And God is going to be back. He's going to absorb into His eternal realities everything that's here that's His. And all that we did not see but believed in will be before our eyes. We can just imagine that for a few minutes. It's good for our faith. I believe the key to a revived life is simply understanding that spiritual life and, and real satisfaction does not come from inside this material bubble that we live in. It comes from a source that goes beyond that. It's the Lord Jesus Himself. That's who we're called to know. Now the most amazing thing about God, I think, is not that He's the star setter. It's not that He's the flagella designer. It's not necessarily that He is the master of creativity and all these things. Those things are marvelous. One of the most amazing things that I can think of about God is what He said in John 3, verse 1. I believe 1 John. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. In all of Scripture, I don't know of a verse more amazing than that. It's one thing to know the immensity of God and be convinced of it, but to really understand that that God is my Father. And that eternity and that immense Creator is personally interested in my life, in my existence, in my needs. You have many callings in life. Some are called to be ministers. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be moms and and dads, or whatever you're called to be. The highest call you ever experience, and the one you must maintain first in your life, is a call to be a son or daughter of Almighty God. I don't have a calling beyond that. It's higher than that. More important than that. And all through history, and even today, men of faith have lived inside this physical world and experienced what it's like to walk with God. They've seen beyond the obvious. If you want to see that, read, read Hebrews 11. Men who saw things that other people didn't see. Believed things that other people ridiculed. Had faith when everyone else was cynical. These are the ones that knew what it was to walk with God. What does this mean? Jesus said this in John 16, 15. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. See, through what Jesus has done, Jesus said He has access to all the storehouses and all the provision and the wealth and resources of heaven. And here it says, uh, everything I have is mine. I'm going to take it and make it available for your need. Whatever that need is, it's available for you. In 2 Peter 1.3, it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That's an amazing promise. That means that everything you need for physical life and everything you need for a victorious spiritual life is yours. You have access to it as we know Christ. 
and as we walk with him. If God is our Father, what can we expect from him? How can I expect his intervention in my life? There's a few things that immediately stand out to us, things that we think about. The first thing that we tend to think about is that God, who knows my need, will provide for my needs. And I believe we can expect provision from God. And sometimes I wonder if we are uh, a little bit insulated and isolated from the edge of this reality because some of us could be locked into our homes for the next three months and survive without even one trip to Walmart. Can you imagine that? We have enough to just keep us going for a while. There's some people that don't live like that. We tend to dump all our energies into life, and life requires a lot. It's busy. There's demands. There's children to take care of. There's work to be done. There's fields to plant and cows to milk, and all that's important. But then we tend to step back and look and say like Nebuchadnezzar did, look at this great thing that I have built with the strength of my might. And we forget that from God come all the things that make my life what it is. Jesus says, Your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And in our efforts, and in our work, and our circumstances, it's God that does the adding, because I know people that work probably twice as hard as you do and live on less than half as much. And God's provision is much more obvious to them. And there's people in history, you know their stories. I love the story of Elijah and the, uh, the widow woman and the flour and the oil and how Elijah came along. He was being taken care of by this brook and God said, I want to send you now to live with this widow. And after a diet of bread and water, he was probably saying, thank you, Lord. I, I need a change of diet. Maybe it's one of these rich widows whose wives, whose husbands left them well off and well taken care of. And he walks in this lady's yard and here she's gathering two sticks to build a fire to eat and starve to death herself. And he's probably thinking, Lord, you must have made a mistake here somewhere. This isn't the right one. But through her obedience and his faith, the flour kept coming, the oil kept coming all the time they needed it. You read the story of George Mueller's orphans. You heard the story of uh, God knows my size. Perfect ways of God showing he knows what we need when we need it. I knew a lady in Guatemala who lived from hand to mouth. Every time some money would come in, she'd go to all the stores and pay up debts and, and she would almost never be able to buy something fresh because she's simply paying off debts from last week. And walking home one evening, she found a hundred consoled bill lying in the ditch. Amazing thing for her. Right when she needed it the most. Did it ever happen to you? That what you needed, when you needed it, it was there. It's simply a father taking care of a child that he's looking out for. It's beautiful to see that happen. I'm sure you have. When God is my Father, it means He's enabling me. Enablement. Life lobs us challenges too big for us to handle. And I believe God's intervention equips us for those things we don't know how to handle. They're too big for us. They're beyond our capacity. Philippians 4.13 said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me and and Paul said, my grace, or God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now, if you have never experienced that, you've never run into a dead end and said, Lord, if you don't help me, I'm stuck. Then your faith is something like an untested parachute. It's great to have it on, but you'll never need it until you're outside the airplane. And sometime in life, you'll be out there and you'll need it. 
And those that have tested it can say that God does come through and God does enable us and equip us when we need it for what we need. Did for David. David walked out in front of a giant and did what he needed to do. Uh, Jonathan went up to those Philistines and did what he needed to do. And God was there for him. Now God did not invent a sling for David. He used something that David was equipped in all these years. Same with Jonathan. But I don't believe it was their adeptness at the sling or adeptness at the sword that, that did what they did. It was their attitude toward God. David went out and said, you're coming to me with all the forces in the material universe you have at your disposal. I'm coming to you in the name of the Almighty God. Who's going to win? That was an easy contest, wasn't it? Jonathan went up against the Philistines and said, it isn't hard for God to save by many or by few. Let's go see what He can do for us. And he went. And God came through for him. It has a faith that access the provision and the, the enablement of God. You ever need wisdom you didn't have? I often wonder at Jesus' wisdom. He was so wise. They, they would plop two options in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, is this one or is this one? Which of the seven is going to be, she going to be a wife to? Or uh, should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? And Jesus was always able to say, would you ever think of this option back here? The master of the third option. He kept his mind open. He knew far deeper than what they were presenting to him. He was wise. One of my greatest fears sometimes is wondering, what if I don't know what to say? What if I don't know what to say? Or do? Jesus gave us this assurance. And when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. I know this is given specifically to persecuted believers being brought before a judge, brought before a council. But we can still depend on the Lord to give us wisdom because James said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. That's for you and me. I was helping with a church building project in Guatemala. Some of you visited that church. And uh, I was trying to help keep material supplied there and another young man and I were hauling stuff over when they needed more materials to work. And we had a Guatemalan foreman doing that job. And he was a new believer. He had come into the church recently and he was in instruction class, doing a good job for us. But the other missionary man came and told me, you know, I think that man must be stealing from us because things just aren't lining up right. The cement's getting all too quick. The steel is getting all too quick. It doesn't make sense to me how this is happening. And uh, I had to step in and do something about this because we had to confront the issue. But you ever almost feel paralyzed because you don't know what to do? And... Uh, I really needed wisdom because to take a young believer and tell him we think you're stealing, that's a pretty harsh accusation. They can take that to heart pretty deeply. It can be a hurtful thing. As I called the man, I said, I need a meeting with you. And it suited him at 2 o'clock, so he would come over at 2 o'clock. And in the meantime, I said, Lord, I'm not sure what to do here. I really, really need some help. I really, really need some wisdom. And after praying about this thing, I was reading in Scripture, opened it up, and, and these verses came to my attention. The first place I looked, and it said this, 
in the story in 2 Kings 22, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house unto carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. Now where in all of Scripture would you find a verse like that? And so he came and we had this meeting. And I still asked the right questions and I still probed about his methods. But I did it with this verse in mind. With this concept in mind. You know, I think he's okay. And he explained to me how he's mixing his concrete and how much goes into a cubic foot and how he's wiring his steel and how he's using it. It all played out. We did the math together and it worked. He did not go away an accused and bitter new believer. We kept up a good relationship. If any man need wisdom, let him ask of God. We have constant access. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. There's no office hours there. There's no limits there on time, on requests, no needs out of bounds. If you're awake at midnight, you can come. If you're at work and have extra time, you can come. If you're facing a decision, you can come. If you're dealing with difficult people, you can come. You can come because of what you need and you can come because He loves you. He's your Father. And the first step to revive life is steps of faith toward God. I think sometimes it's time to stop and review what our concept of God really is. Who He is. Refocus our priority. Turn our hearts back to Him. We live in a very materialistic world. Humanistic world. What humanism has done is changed man's relationship with God. It's taken God and turned Him into a man and taken man and turned Him into a God. Whenever God is small and man is large, the relationship changes between them. And you can't relate properly to God when you feel you're larger than you should be and He's smaller than He should be. And uh, when I am large and God is small, that means we can negotiate some things. We can discuss some things. We can sin with no consequence. And I wonder sometimes if our view of God has become warped through our society's pressures. There was a nurse in Guatemala who needed some time by herself. She was a very busy young lady. She would be in clinic all morning and then go out to visit her patients over the lunch hour, skip lunch, and go back to the clinic in the afternoon and serve there all afternoon and go home in the evening to make supper. But she found a little piece of quiet time to go out by herself and she went out to a rock in the middle of a field sort of out of the way. I was sitting there doing some meditation and some reading and uh, just thinking about things. And, and a man walked by. After a while, he came back. He walked over to where she was and pulled a pistol and said, you're going with me to the woods. And she got up and she was on this side of the rock and he was on that side. And he came around this way. She would go around this way. And uh, she said, just shoot me here. I'm not going anywhere with you. And uh, he was very frustrated. He couldn't do anything. He went around and around this rock. Finally, he took her cell phone and her money and left. Left her alone. He was shot to death a few weeks after that. But she was quite shaken. She went back home 
And later she said that she was out there working on her memory verse for Sunday, which was, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about those that fear Him. She was out there thinking about how great God is and how small she is. And that was what was on her mind when this happened. And that's a proper perspective of God. The proper perspective of God is the one that God showed, Jesus showed the disciples. Our Father which art in heaven. The in heaven part is the immensity of it. The Father part is the personality and the intimacy of it. And that's who God is. It's His vastness and His nearness. It's His eternity and His approachability. His majesty and His humility. It's Jehovah and its Father, all in the same being. And we know God like that. We can go through life with this wonder. That I can walk on this earth but belong to a different place. The God of this universe is never far from where I am. And may we take our perspective of God from this and go through this week with this in mind. I don't know about you, but my heart is to know this God. You know, I think that when we get to heaven, I think if we spend all eternity in heaven, we still won't have plumbed the depths of the vastness and the, the immensity and the mind and the heart of God. I don't believe it's going to be possible. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads. Just a little quiet of personal prayer. Ask yourself this question. If you would ask for your own life one thing this week, what would it be? What do you really want? Is God close enough to hear you? Is He big enough to answer it? Father, we come to You this evening and we thank You for Your immensity and Your greatness. And I thank You that when Jesus came, He showed us the Father aspect of, of Jehovah. We want to know Him that way and experience Him that way. I dedicate our lives to Him this week. And throughout this week, Father, speak to our hearts and invite us closer. Help us, Father, to come because we want to come. By all means, O oh Lord, by whatever, whatever method, uh, do in our hearts what you want to get done. I want to give you honor this week and glorify your name and allow you to be supreme and Lord in our life. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.